And welcome to another episode of Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me as always is Toby. Hi, Toby. Hi, Simon. Today is a very special episode of the show, not only because we have a fantastic guest joining us, but also because we are introducing you to uh, a new member of the show. Uh, Hello and welcome to Vaughn. Hi, thank you for having me. So Vaughn will be joining us from now on, so very exciting. Uh, Our guest today is Josh Levine, a writer and executive editor at Slate, whose book, the Queen, the Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth is the subject of today's show. Hi, Josh. Thanks so much for joining us. Really glad to be here. Thank you guys for having me on. Uh, now, in 2013, Josh, you wrote an article in Slate uh, on Linda Taylor, a woman, Ronald Reagan, and the Chicago Tribune termed a welfare queen. And Linda is the central figure of your book, The Queen, which was published last year. Josh, can you introduce our audience Uh, to your book and the story of Linda Taylor and also tell us a little bit about your research into this fascinating character. Yeah, of course. So Linda Taylor was a woman who uh, became a publicly known figure in the U.S. in 1974 when the Chicago Tribune wrote about her as a woman who'd stolen an enormous amount of public assistance uh, and there were claims that she was driving uh, luxury cars and that she wore fur coats. And she became this kind of figure of, uh, you know, a a particular kind of of crime, of welfare fraud, public assistance theft. And it was the Tribune, uh, the newspaper that gave her the nickname, the Welfare Queen. And then when Ronald Reagan ran for president in 1976, he would tell Taylor's story on the campaign trail as an example of um, how these social services, public aid programs were being abused and these programs were um, the subject of rampant fraud and cheating. Um, Taylor's story was far more complicated than was, um, you know, allowed for by the Tribune or by Reagan, and I spent a very long time researching her, the facts of her um, case, and trying to assemble a biography of this this person who had been caricatured and stereotyped. And in some ways, she was, you know, victimized and uh, abused herself. Um, But in, in other ways, she was actually a victimizer. And the focus on welfare fraud actually obscured other crimes that she had committed where the victims were real people and people whose um, kind of plates at at her hands were never really um, considered particularly important. And so it's a really expansive story um, and one that was uh, very uh, complicated to tell because she was somebody who, um, you know, changed her name, changed her identity um, and uh, had a very kind of long and uh, complicated life. Josh, could you expand on where Linda Taylor was born, what was her actual first name, and uh, how did she come to be um, part of the Chicago fabric of the 1970s? She was born as uh, Martha Louise White, in Gold Dust, Tennessee in 1926. I was always kind of blown away by the fact that that was a real place <laughs> um, because it is such a, a fabulous and evocative it's name. It's very Hollywood, yes. It is, yeah, yeah, and it's a place that actually doesn't really exist anymore. And so it, it, there is sort of like a Brigadoonish quality to it, <laughs> I guess. It, it's on the Mississippi River and was the subject to uh, flooding and eventually... Um, was kind of washed away. And so, yeah, the place where she was born existed for a time, but no longer. Um, Her family came from uh, the Deep South in the U.S. um, and were kind of itinerant farmers. Um, There was a lot of kind of wage labor on on plantations, on on cotton farms for her family. And so that would happen in uh, 
Tennessee and Arkansas, both kind of on opposite sides of the Mississippi River. Her mother uh, was named uh, Lydia Mooney was her maiden name, and then uh, Lydia White. And she had come from, from Alabama, and her family uh, origins were that, that they're in a part of the state in the north that was um, you know, extremely, extremely segregated to such a degree that black people were not allowed to be in the county at, um, at night. Uh, and so her, her mother was white, that side of her family was white, um, but she was the product um, of a mixed relationship. And this was a source of great shame in the family, was hidden, um, and she was treated um, as uh, a mixed race child as essentially a pariah, was denied an education, was an outcast in her own family. And she eventually left home uh, fairly young as a young teenager and went out um, to the West Coast and had a very itinerant life um, from there. Ended up in Chicago in, uh, you know, starting in, in Illinois and then in, in Chicago um, in the 1960s. And that kind of paralleled in a lot of ways um, the path that a lot of Black Americans took moving from the South to um, to the North to Chicago in particular was a, a very um, you know popular des destination in the Great Migration. And so she had a, a you know, idiosyncratic and unusual pathway to get from the South to Chicago, but, um, you know, kind of in some, that's, that's how she ended up there. How did she develop all of her aliases? Um, you know, she starts as, she starts as, um, she has a Martha Louise as her original name. How did she develop into Linda Taylor, then Linda Bennett, and then Connie Jarvis? And um, how did she come to have so many different paramours? And uh, how did she almost uh, establish herself as you know someone who, in the within the South, had had a quite difficult upbringing as someone who actually possessed, I think, a, a personal um, um, character that, that 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 meant that any any time she walked in the room, she turned heads, and and. How did she become this sort of per this safe shape shifting person whose only I think consistency was that she was a, a very sort of strong willed individual? She was somebody who was you know on the margins of society from the early part of her life, and the first arrest that I found for her was in uh, Washington State in the early nineteen. 40s for essentially prostitution. Um, and then she goes to California and has, um, you know, another series of arrests for that and, and similar offenses. And so, you know, one idea is that, you know, she had different identities to kind of get ahead of the law or to try to kind of fit in um, wherever it is that, that she was and to create new personas for her, herself um, because it, it wasn't as if I think she was particularly attached to, you know, the moniker that she had from her birth, given that her family um, was so, you know, hurtful and, and, and harmful. And so it kind of makes sense that she would have a loose attachment to, you know, even her name. But there were other kind of legal reasons, um, you know, when she married a white man in California in 1948, she put on the, uh, you know, the form, the marriage certificate that she was Hawaiian rather than that she was, you know, of, of mixed black and white um, descent. And, you know, the reason to do that is that interracial marriage in California at that time was illegal. Um, and so in you know, it's it's kind of disturbing to think about these sorts of racial hierarchies. But at that at that time in California, 
Hawaiian was basically cl- was classified as essentially white uh, mm-hmm. in terms of of marriage, and so a Hawaiian person was allowed to marry a white man, but a, somebody who is considered black wouldn't be. And so there, you know, there are all sorts of reasons why she would um, change whether it was her racial classification, whether it was her her name, and so um, that just sort of persisted throughout her life. And she also did it, I think, for um, you know, to abet various criminal schemes. It's harder for um, law enforcement to keep track of you, especially in the day before you know computerized record keeping systems. If you're always changing uh, your characteristics, if you're always changing your name, and so I, I think it was kind of overdetermined that she was going to um, have different names, different identities, different characteristics. And you um, seem to suggest that this was a, as you've touched on, a, a reaction to the one drop rule that persisted, because it seems like there, there are hierarchies, but that the main thing is a sort of lasting contradistinction between whiteness and blackness that allows people who are Hawaiian and even in some parts people who are Mexican to go on as white, while mixed mulatto people did not have that kind of advantage. Sure. I mean, yeah, we, we can talk like in a kind of granular way about the different, um, you know, rules and pieces of legislation that might um, circumscribe someone's life. But I think the big picture here is racism. Like the, mm-hmm. the explanation for, um, for this is um, racist attitudes. Um, the one drop rule, this idea that if there's any kind of detectable trace of black blood in you that means that you're black i mean that is a racist idea if you're Mm -hmm. a mixed race origin you know the idea that to call yourself white is somehow it's passing or it's obscuring your origins i mean you're you're just as much white as you are black in that case and so this idea that um your black um you know blackness overrides everything else is a a racist idea and so it's important i think to keep that in mind, how racism affected her life and circumscribed the, you know, the choices she made in a bunch of different ways. That being said, it, you know, I wanted in telling the story um, to be honest and clear about um, her life and her background and what effects it had. And also to be clear that none of that necessarily explains her behavior. Mm-hmm. that there are um, people who go through incredibly trying circumstances and don't become criminals. And so I think it's important to understand who she was if you want a full picture of this um, this person, but also not um, try to think of it as, okay, if we're learning this, that means that we're making excuses for her. You know, she she's accused of of homicide and kidnapping. It's not to say that, like, the the things that have happened to her in her life excuse um, that sort of behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And could you go into the mechanics of her criminal behavior? Because they're it, actually quite int- intricate. Like, mm-hmm. She possibly had 54 aliases between 44 and, and 74, arrested for multiple things, and um, had several different husbands, it was involved in ins- insurance fraud and six felony counts of illegally cashing U.S. Treasury checks. Like, how does she manage to do this? Because she almost seems like a criminal savant, yeah? Yeah, it's interesting to think about whether she was actually good at committing crimes or whether <laughs> she was just particularly brazen. And I think in a lot of cases, it was more the latter. She wasn't amazing at avoiding getting caught she was very good at avoiding consequences and she would not let um you know law enforcement or any other kind of things that might deter people deter her she would um you know change venues she would move from michigan to illinois or from you know to from california or or washington or arizona so she would kind of get ahead of the law in that way. And she would have very short-term relationships. She was somebody 
somebody who was, I think, very enticing and charismatic mm -hmm. to be around, but for a short period of time. Um, and she would take advantage of people and take advantage of institutions. Um, and the thing that's, I think, fairly remarkable about her is that, you know, if you were to classify her as a con, con artist, broadly speaking, when you look at, at people who fit that description, a lot of times they specialize. They'll take advantage of um, the elderly or they'll take advantage of women or they'll take advantage of, you know, young people. She um, was incredibly uh, versatile in terms of, you know, she would take advantage of people in all of those categories that I just listed, as well as bureaucrats. Um, and so she didn't really discriminate. And so it, uh, I think, just gave her a huge number of opportunities to commit crime. She was always kind of scheming and, and thinking um, and would just move on and, and move to, to the next thing. Yeah, and the men you sort of um, relay here, the relationships, they always, they, like you said, they always seem to be incredibly enamored by her. Her, her furs, her, the, 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 the interiors of her houses, the amount of money that she always had available to them. And she, she comes across as, as a, you know, quite sort of not only a demanding character, but a character who sort of stood above a lot of the people around her. But then in steps her friend Patricia Parks, the sort of 36-year-old school teacher with, with three kids and multiple sclerosis. How did she come to know Patricia Parks? And what was it that brought these two people together? Because Patricia Parks actually comes across as quite a modest and, you know, nice individual. Yeah, they met um, in church. And this was on the south side of Chicago. They lived close to each other in the neighborhood. And Patricia Parks was someone who was really struggling at that period of her life. She was going mm -hmm. through a divorce. She had three kids and she had major health issues. And so it was incredibly alluring to her to meet someone who offered to help. She was somebody who was uh, in desperate need of help. And so that, that seemed like a really good match that Linda Taylor would come and help take care of her, um, help take care of her children. And she sort of insinuated herself into her life that way. And I think, and, and that is a recurring pattern is finding people who are susceptible in various ways, whether it is because like with Patricia Parks, they, um, you know, need her, uh, you know, to help take care of them or, you know, uh, men who might just find her really attractive. And so there, she can kind of worm her, her way in there or the elderly, you know, people who, might not be in you know full possession of their faculties, and so she can kind of trick them or convince them to to give her money. So in the Patricia Park situation, she just moves into her house and starts um, you know isolating Patricia from her family, from her children. She starts you know the treatments that she's giving her are only making her health worse, and in the meantime, she's you know Patricia's making Linda the executor of her estate. Um, signing over her house to her, and Patricia dies um, of a drug overdose, and, and uh, it's it's deemed suspicious for obvious reasons, for the reasons that I just laid out. And yet, mm -hmm. um, Taylor's never charged with with a crime in, in connection to, to any of this. And Patricia Parks's husband, although you know he had early suspicions of uh, Taylor, he did seem to quite dislike the person that his um, wife or former wife was uh, spending time with and he did talk about his own suspicions but she was never charged with the uh, potential murder of Patricia Parks at all yeah John Parks the, the husband mm -hmm. the ex-husband um, I interviewed him for oh. The, the book and he told me that um, the police never talked to him. Um, you know, this was almost, I think, 40 years after it happened. And he said, you know, told me, like, you waited a really long time to come and talk about this. He was kind of waiting for somebody to care about this 
story. And he said, you know, his belief was that because Patricia Parks was a black woman on the south side of Chicago at a time when, um, you know, there were there were a lot of murders in Chicago that year, the most ever in the history of the city. It was kind of deemed a non-event in contrast to the allegations of welfare fraud against Taylor, which were kind of became a national story. This alleged murder was just not of interest to the police or to the to the media. And so that was part of his his story was that um, he just thought this had never been properly investigated and, and nobody had had really cared. And he also had regrets for the way that he had handled it. He said that he had kind of pulled away just because he found the, you know, Taylor so um, anger inducing mm-hmm. that he just couldn't be around her. And just, he was like, well, my ex-wife wants to, you know, sign herself over to this woman, then, you know, that's her, that's her decision. And I, he certainly came to regret that. So we've built up this general impression of, of, of quite sort of, deviant and exploitative person and i and i would like to go into what was the idea because this is i don't know if this isn't necessarily been solved that she stole the baby paul fronzak and that she was involved in actually you know the selling of children there was um an incident in 1964 in a hospital in Chicago where mm-hmm. a newborn baby was stolen from uh, his mother's arms and it became an enormous national story, headlines everywhere, FBI, um, manhunt throughout Chicago and the nation. And the suspect, uh, the person dressed as a nurse was never found and it remains uh unsolved to this day although um the child after 55 years um there were reports fairly recently that the child had actually been found um alive but um it's unclear um what the circumstances around that are because um the the person who was found doesn't want to become publicly known and wants to kind of rip have their story remain hidden. But regardless of that, the, the person who perpetrated this was, was never found. But Taylor was um, investigated by the FBI um, as a suspect in this crime. And there's reasons to believe, as I detail in the book, why it possibly could have been her. There are people in her life who believe that she did it. And there are also various reasons why, um, you know, it, it seems unlikely. So I don't particularly have um, strong feelings either way. I kind of lay out the, the evidence, but she, Taylor was arrested for kidnapping at other times. It's inarguable that she did kidnap children. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a question about whether she did in this, this particular case. But, you know, her son, her biological son said that he believed that she was selling children on the, the black market. And there were cases, um, you know, people that I interviewed personally, um, where they attested to the fact that um, Taylor had, you know, they had they had witnessed her her being a kidnapper and also like police reports about um, her um, being arrested with for for kidnapping, although never charged. So I, I think this is a part of her criminal backgrounds um and and kind of unquestionably um you know to to my eyes and i think to to most people's again kind of calls into question this focus on her as a welfare cheat and raises uh questions about why welfare fraud was seen as the most outrageous of her crimes and was really the only one that she was ever held to account for when there's all this this other behavior, known behavior, that that seems kind of much, far more uh, appalling. So this story doesn't seem to grab the attention of uh, the local authorities and federal authorities until 
George Bliss makes it into a, a big story. And George Bliss was at the Chicago Tribune. He was probably part of making, you know, making Chicago Tribune one of the the, the great newspapers in America. It might have been, you know, the high watermark of the respectability of that newspaper, and and then George Bliss, um, he was a great um, investigative reporter, made a lot of people famous, and then took on the, uh, the position as the labor editor. Did how did George Bliss um, come to discover the story, and what was his angle in the story and why did it become as as big as it did yeah as you said george bliss was known as the best investigative reporter in chicago and was sort of a brand name in chicago at that time um and had done a bunch of uh, pulitzer prize winning investigations very kind of um celebrated for being able to hold institutions to account. And around this time, he had been uh, investigating the welfare department, uh, public aid department mm-hmm. in the state of Illinois and finding um, sort of lax controls and various just issues with the bureaucracy there. And Bliss had been a, a beat reporter, police reporter for uh, a very long time in Chicago and had a lot of sources in the Chicago Police Department. And so he was able through his sources to get information about Taylor. And his first story, the gist of it was that this woman had been found with multiple welfare identification cards, had been suspected of getting welfare checks under multiple names, and yet um, local and state and federal authorities had not evinced any kind of interest in you know, looking into what appeared to the police to be obvious welfare fraud. And so Bliss was using this story as an example of the public aid department's incompetency, that you have this just so obvious, simple case of fraud, and yet they were so lazy and incompetent that they didn't bother to investigate it. And gradually, the public aid department's role in all of this becomes minimized, I think because it's less interesting and salacious, and Bliss begins to focus more on Taylor herself as being the problem rather than the bureaucracy. And Bliss worked closely with um, Sherwin, uh, his partner Jerry Cush, the Republican Senator Don Moore, and then the Legislative Advisory Committee on Public Aid, and you have all these characters coming together and this sort of creates the story. But what is the general context for, or uh, in, in America, um, as regarding welfare cheats? Because it does seem like public opinion in that period was variantly against these this kind of welfare fraud, even much more, I think, uh, benign kinds of welfare fraud. And it wasn't actually that far away from the 1960s where, when, you know, you had, you, you had the greater society and then you had the civil rights mo- movement helping to increase the amount of people who, especially um, dependent mothers, who would have access to welfare. So how do you come, how does it come to a situation where you have all of these characters and the police in the in, in the legislative departments and in newspapers who are virulently against this, and you have a, a, a community more widely who is against this. But this is so close to a period where um, you have a broad expansion in these kinds of benefits. So I think again, the explanation here is race, as you very aptly described um, the changes that happened in the 1960s um, included Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty programs, the inauguration of Medicare and and Medicaid and uh, federal food stamps. Um, But also there were a couple of key Supreme Court decisions and the welfare rights movement, um, as it was called, was around this time. And in aggregate, what all of those um, uh, different 
things accomplished was a, a broad expansion of the pool of people who were eligible for public assistance. And a lot of the people who had been denied assistance before were people of color, predominantly um, black women. And so the perception of uh, welfare recipients uh, at that time became uh, very racialized. And so in the early 60s, if you know, uh, you looked at uh, images in magazines, as a scholar named Martin Gillens did, um, when poverty was depicted in America, it was um, you know white people who are in these photographs. And then as as you get into the 70s, images of poverty become uh, very black. Mm-hmm. And um, you know even as programs like Aid to Families with Dependent Children remain predominantly white, the recipients do. The perception in society is that it's it's black people getting these benefits now. And so um, these kind of critiques of welfare cheats and um, welfare queens, I think it's impossible to separate that from racial animus. And then in the 70s, um, in, the, in the mid-70s, um, there's a really um, kind of serious economic downturn in the United States and, and inflation is, is pretty severe. And so just this idea that there's this class of people that's getting um, assistance that isn't working, whereas um, the, the so-called uh, you know, middle-class American you know, working taxpayer is seeing their paychecks um, you know, not, not go as far. That's a recipe for anger. And I, I think there's a, then a large group of people who's susceptible to um, you know, villainization of uh, an underclass. Yeah, yeah. I think we've sort of found this as well, um, this podcast, like thinking about the Depression era into the 40s and the 50s, all the photographs of that period are of disheveled and emaciated white people. And then you sort of think about poverty in the 60s and it's John Lindsay's New York and the the. the the place is becoming emptied of its white population as they go into the suburbs. And then in different cities and in different urban areas as black people move from the south to the north, the 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 welfare becomes associated with black black people and, and I think um white people no longer have sympathy for it. Really? Well, you're also seeing images from, you know, the Watts riots, for example, mm-hmm. and, and they're also, you know, there's rioting in, in Chicago after Martin Luther King's assassination. And Watts and, in Newark. Sure. And yeah. so there are these um, images being broadcast that sort that feed in to the idea, um, you know, the, the racist conception of, you know, black America, black Americans being out of control. And also just, um, again, this, this idea that, um, there's a group of, of people who are taking advantage of a system that is not helping, um, you know, people who are working, who are paying taxes. And so you do have, uh, I think a lot of resentment and uh, i assume we're going to get to to ronald reagan next yep. but uh, but reagan was uh, i think very skilled at um playing into that without being overt about what he was doing and saying yeah just getting into reagan there's this idea that reagan did not vote for following on from what josh said Reagan did not vote for 60, the civil rights of 64 or the voting rights of 65. And from some of the things he said, you know, he, he felt that black people always wanted a handout. He, he seemed to have a sort of, um, although he might not have been a very racist, he did seem to have a little bit of contempt for the black population. He would always really bridle at the accusation that he was personally racist and would tell um, stories about his upbringing and, and playing with, you know, black 
people on the the football team when he was in <laughs> in school and would use that as a sort of a defense. And I think there's also kind of a a, a certain school of thought or or line of argument that you know I'm, I'm sure you're you're familiar with this idea of of Reagan's kind of personal naivete and how much did he really kind of understand or or know the the implications of of certain things that he was arguing but you know sort of based on what i was laying out before around how welfare had become so racialized in the 60s and 70s i i think it would it, it sort of beggars belief this idea that reagan wouldn't know what he was doing in, uh, in in speaking on welfare in the way that he did. And it was one of his signature leg- legislative accomplishments when he was the governor of California from 1967 mm-hmm. to, to 75. And, and his transition from being known as um, an actor and the head of the Screen Actors Guild into being um, in electoral politics, this was something that he could point to in um, making cuts to the welfare system in California and tightening up rules and, and tightening up the rules. Um, and so I think for him, it, um, you know, it, it was sincerely probably, um, you know, a reflection of his conservative beliefs um, mm-hmm. and wanting to emphasize work rather than, than government assistance. But I think also for him, it was, uh, a way, you know, when he ran for president and wasn't really considered to be a serious political mind at that point, it was a way for him to point to something that he had accomplished. And also it was a, a way for him to appeal to a, a large uh, group of voters who are susceptible to to hear his message. And so I think there were a lot of reasons why Reagan, um, you know, did what he did and, and chose to focus on welfare to the extent that he did. So the the Reagan campaign in 76, could you give me some context on that? Because just before, I, I'd like to go back to Richard Nixon and the, the Nixon administration, which had a really quite mixed fiscal record. You know, they, they implemented wage price controls. They started the um, Environmental Protection Agency. And they obviously they had a House and Senate that was um, Democrat. Then you were going to Gerald Ford, who is, you know, more of a fiscal conservative, right? And Ford is able to tell um, New York when New York is having a budgetary crisis to, well, he doesn't say it, but, you know, this is all the stuff about New York drop dead. So is there a real change between the early 70s to then the 1976 campaign where conservative thought on things like welfare and on things like government more broadly is allowing for someone like Reagan to actually um, challenge an incumbent president. Well, Nixon had actually argued for a guaranteed minimum income in the late 60s. And it had been mm-hmm. Reagan, then the governor of California, who actually came to Washington to testify against it. He kind of became the face of opposition to the guaranteed minimum income. The idea being that if you gave poor people money, then it would disincentivize them to work. And this was an idea that Reagan carried through um, his, his entire political career and, um, you know, helped to, to enact when he was president. But mm-hmm. it, as far as his, his presidential run uh, for the first time in 1976, you know, Ford was pretty deeply uh, unpopular. Uh, and it, it was certainly unusual to have an incumbent president be challenged um, but by a member of his own party in a primary, but there were obviously unusual circumstances to Ford ascending to the presidency in the first place. But, um, you know, Reagan was seen as pretty dangerously conservative, I, I think, in this, this first campaign. And I think his, um, his rhetoric it, it had, I, I feel like for, you know, mainstream 
political uh, observers and commentators, I think there was perhaps a bit of surprise that Reagan did as well as he did with the electorate in that first run, kind of paving the way for his eventual um, success in 1980. But um, I, I think that Reagan sort of electrified um, voters in a way that Ford never did. And there's, you know, perhaps apocryphal um, report from the convention floor in 1976 when, when Ford, you know, earns the, you know, there's a bit of, of fingernail biting, but he does get the nomination at the convention and Reagan gets up and gives a speech and there are people in the crowd saying, oh, I think we've nominated the wrong man. Just Reagan, I think it was his just personal charisma and ability to, um, you know, speechify in a way that I, I think descended from his his training as as an actor um, and his his way to connect with people. And he really used the Linda Taylor anecdote, uh, I think, um, in his campaigns in '76 and '80 because it really connected. Um, with voters, you know, if, if there's one thing that Reagan did understand and, and do do well is it's get feedback from an audience. And so he wouldn't have delivered that anecdote repeatedly if it, it didn't get the kind of response that it did. And what were the immediate implications of Reagan's speeches about Linda, Linda Taylor? And did they have immediate implications for um sort of pushing even the the Carter administration or um state legislatures um in conservative states towards more punitive um anti-welfare regulations i think that um it wasn't just reagan i think in the state of of illinois where taylor was put on on trial and convicted of welfare fraud, her case, and the amount of publicity it got from the Tribune and then eventually from national media did lead to a far more punitive view of welfare fraud and not just, you know, uh, really massive fraud and, and kind of inarguable fraud in the way that the Taylor engaged in it using multiple names to get multiple checks and multiple ad addresses, but more kind of small potatoes um, administrative type fraud was actually seen as criminal and rather than being treated at, um, you know, as an administrative issue, as something to be handled, um, you know, by a bureaucracy, it was seen as, as uh, a crime or an infraction that was to be handled by the police and the courts. And so you see people increasingly getting put on trial and getting sent to prison for welfare-related crimes. And that extends out from Illinois um, across the country. And you see a massive, massive increase in criminal prosecutions of welfare fraud. And so I think part of it is due to media coverage of Taylor. And I think part of it is, sure, due to the publicity that Reagan um, gave to the case. And then to subsequent cases, you know, there were other people that were referred to as the welfare queen after Linda Taylor as well. Uh, but then on the other hand, you also have pushback. You know, when Reagan starts telling the story, you also have members of the media and, and Reagan's political opponents on the left accusing him of lying or exaggeration. And so you have this kind of push and pull that starts to happen where you have some one subgroup of people arguing that Taylor is an example of a welfare system that's um, totally out of control and needs to be reined in. And then on the other side, you have people who are arguing that, um, you know, it, it's uh, an outlier and that even this outlier example is being exaggerated for political gain. I think the way Linda Taylor emerges in this book, she's, she's a, was a mytho mythological figure. She reminds me of the sort of, Bonnie and Clyde type figure. I can imagine this. There might be a movie in this <laughs> for you. And I just wanted to know how she was finally caught by the authorities. Because she did she make up that she had been burgled and then 
the investigators finally caught caught up with her? Yeah, she uh, staged a, a burglary at her apartment, and um, it was an, infer- an insurance fraud scheme. She claimed that things were stolen that were not stolen in order to make an insurance claim, and the detective uh, who went to check out that burglary, I, I think, was able fairly quickly to determine that she wasn't on the level. And then he also found um, multiple welfare identification cards in her possession, and that was used to to discover that she was, in addition to committing insurance fraud, um, was getting these public assistance checks under multiple names. And again, the issue with her, it, it had never been that she was uh, able to elude law enforcement. Um, it was always just the question of whether she would be held to account for what she had done. And because of the publicity from George Bliss and the Tribune and then from Reagan as well, it just turned out that this was the individual incident that led to her being um, put on trial and, and imprisoned for multiple years. So it, it's it's not that she had um, been like living um, totally in the shadows for for decades before this. It was just that she would occasionally get caught and then just go right back to what she had been doing. This was just the case when she was stopped, at least for a brief period of time, and then she gets out of prison, changes her identity, the the press. Um, and politicians lose interest in her because they've moved on to other welfare queens and other um, notorious individuals. And then she kind of just goes on uh, in a new place and under a new name, committing additional crimes, again, kind of um, without being held to account for them. I want to know how you think the welfare queen campaign, because, I mean, you see um, the Reagan administration, and although Reagan had been able to implement welfare reform in California and, and fiscal reform in, in, in California, you don't get this kind of um, massive government attempt to reduce welfare until the confluence of forces that bring a sort of con- conservative Democrat like the Clinton and the contract of America people under Newt Gingrich to actually say that people, especially African-American women, are being incentivized to stay at home, especially if they're unmarried and carry on like this. Why is it that, you know, you end up, although you have this quite, important national campaign and a character who takes on a, almost like a psychic negativity in the, in the American mind in 76? Why is it you don't have this broad legislative attempt to curb welfare for on, on a national level and welfare, actually just normal p- people in precarious positions taking welfare in until 1994? So, you know, Reagan does actually succeed in passing fairly substantial cuts in the beginning of his first term. You know, Congress mm-hmm. um, approved $35 billion in cuts for the fiscal year of, of 1982 under his direction, and $25 billion of that came from initiatives that affected the poor. So you had, um, you know, a cut of, you know, just to name one example, a million people lose access to food stamps. Then. And so there, there is some curbing of, of social services under Reagan, although the, the cuts in the very beginning of his first term are the m- most substantial. And then I think because you have a Democratic Congress, um, there is kind of a, a check put on put on him for um, the remainder of his tenure. And, and as you rightly noted, when Clinton um, gets into office, or rather, I think I think we should start with when he uh, runs for president. He talks about ending welfare as we know it on the campaign trail, and his pollsters report that more than anything that he said during that campaign, that was 
the phrase end welfare as we know it that um, tested the highest that um, you know the the American people most responded to this idea that welfare was out of control and again I think you can look at um, poor economic times as, as an explanation for that and so you know but but it's also telling that when Clinton got into office, I think for him, that was a slogan that helped get him elected. But the first focus of the Clinton administration was health care. Um, and then it's when um, the Republicans and, and Newt Gingrich ride in on a wave in 1994 that he's held to account to that campaign promise and said, all right, you said we're going to end welfare as we know it. Let's uh, let's get cracking on that. And, and Clinton um, is, um, you know, boxed in at that point and uh, you have uh, a Republican designed bill that um, you know gets on his desk and he doesn't sign once and twice and then the third time he does um, and you know that's not to say that this was all kind of Republican engineered and generated you had Democrats you know including like John Kerry um, who supported um, the the welfare reform of, of the 90s and it was a hugely significant change both in, in terms of dollars and cents but also just in terms of philosophy uh -huh. where public benefits go from being you know seen as an entitlement in America if you fit particular parameters and those parameters are certainly debated but I think there's an idea that if you fall into a certain um, you know level of poverty then you're entitled to some assistance um, and then kind of post the Clinton welfare reform, um, you know, the, the name of the, the most prominent program, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, gets changed to Temporary Assistance to Needy Families. And so that, that change, it, the, the change is really in the name. It becomes a temporary program where, um, you know, it's, it's not uh, uh, a, a program where you can be on it for as, as long as you might um, qualify. Um, it's something that's that's time limited. It's a limited pool of money. And so um, that's just really the most significant, um, you know, change to uh, to welfare programs in America. And it happens under a Democratic president. Yeah. So we're going on to welfare to work from the the the, the older system. But, and I think on this podcast, we talked to Angie Maxwell, who recently wrote a book called um, the, the, the Long Southern Strategy. And in it, she posits that, like, like as you have said, that race was the big issue that led to Americans generally losing um, sympathy or interest in welfare recipients and those and on the longer rungs of society. But what would you say to the, the Kevin Cruz idea that what, what actually happened, what led to Reagan in part is a, is a, a suburban strategy, an idea that actually people uh, since the 60s and maybe even broadly since uh, the end of the, the the New Deal becoming more and more individualistic and more and more personally re responsible, and that that actually Clinton uh, in and towards um, in in the nineties was able to find a group of sort of lower middle class voters who were less interested in. Um, trying to help the poor but more interested in finding their way in society and because of that had become much um less interested in in, in helping the poor how, how do you think i mean much broadly how do you think it, the, the, this this whole thing is a question of race or, or is, is it a question of people becoming more individualistic you know, between the 70s and, and, and the 90s. Yeah, I mean, with any kind of broad historical questions like that, I think if we're being honest, then we, we have to say that it has to be a combination of, of so many different factors rather than uh -huh. saying it's one versus 
the other. That seems because that seems a little... in your book, you said you said that actually the the welfare queen thing started as an, uh, an, a New York Times piece much much earlier than the the, the Linda Taylor. Is there an impression that Americans just don't like people who don't work? You know, they go to the stores and they see people on food stamps able to just um, buy things that they can't buy, and then they they generally have a resentment to those kinds of people who are in situations for you know a lot of different factors because Americans are much more, I think, um, individualistic. You know. I think there's some truth to that. I mean, if you look back to the inauguration of aid to dependent children, hmm. which later became aid to families with dependent children, this happened. It happened in the 1930s under Franklin Roosevelt, and the intended recipients at that point for that government aid were um, white widows, and uh, you know, America. I, I think white America had a lot of sympathy for the idea that um, if a white woman is, um, you know, their their husband dies, then that is the kind of person that is deserving of our sympathy and our aid. And yet, at the same time, you have newspaper stories even dating back to the 30s about women who were suspected of cheating the system. And I think there is this, very deeply held and long held suspicion of people um, in America getting things from government, getting um, money from government. And this idea that um, if there is money to be had from government, then people are going to lie and cheat and steal to get it. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, there's this idea that, you know, welfare is this pretty squirrely term. And I think, for Americans, welfare is something that um, other people get, and any kind of assistance you get from the government with your mortgage or, um, you know, the the GI Bill, um, where the, the veterans that white veterans were able to use to go to, to college after World War II, anything like that is not welfare, but anything that somebody else gets is mm-hmm. welfare, and it's seen uh-huh. as this kind of pejorative negative term. And I think the difference in what happens around the time of of Linda Taylor, again, is that the notion of welfare and welfare queens becomes racialized um, because of the expansion of of these programs to um, African-American recipients. And so, you know, in my research and in the book, I'm not arguing that um, the concept of a welfare cheat is new around Linda Taylor, that Linda Taylor, like individuals, weren't um, kind of um, excoriated in, in the press before that. It just kind of assumed a different guise. And I think the valence of the conversation shifted around the 70s and beyond. It's interesting what you say about the welfare there. It's a little bit like the sort of selective socialism of uh, of Trump when it comes to farmers compared to uh, maybe against yeah. poor families. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a similar sort of thing. Um, is there any more questions? Vaughn, have you got any more questions on this before we type out one final one for uh, for George? I, I don't really have a question, but I think that one of the most poignant and salient lines from your book that's just running through all of this conversation is where you say the hardships faced by struggling American families didn't generate massive public outrage. The astonishing details of Taylor's parasitic life did. I think that's just such a wonderful summation of what you're talking about, of this kind of public outrage um, and public appeal towards her story, much more than the actual foundational problems with the bureaucratic system around welfare and the actual tangible legislative problems that were an issue in so many classes of the U.S. at the time, um, that this focus wasn't on those problems. It was about the appeal and the allure of Linda Taylor as an individual. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that there was, um, you know, a lot of concern starting in the 70s because of the expansion of these programs 
with the amount of, of money. And there was legitimately um, a huge increase in spending on public assistance mm -hmm. in the 60s and 70s. And yet that, that money in large part was going to the place that it was intended. Poverty declined substantially during this period. And so when politicians sort of railed against this outrageous um, spending increase, you know, it takes money to alleviate poverty. And yet um, it was the spending that was really seen as the problem and not the poverty. I think part of the reason why this story sort of grabs the imagination of the American public is that, you know, any sort of political campaign needs a sort of hero narrative or a parable or, you know, and Reagan was very good at that. He'd been doing that since a time for for choosing st stories about institutions, and some of them are excellent, you know. But stories about institutions can't be sold on a bumper sticker, you know. Yeah, uh, I don't have much to add to that. I just co <laughs> I co-sign. I co-sign co that sentence. <laughs> Uh, just wrapping up then, Josh, you may have already answered this question, so apologies, but what would you say is the, the lasting legacy of the term welfare queen in poisoning the public on social welfare and the sort of general social safety net that, uh, that the Republicans at that time fought against? And, and one more thing, like, do you think welfare is a big issue in the, the campaign that we're having right now? Because, I mean... Bernie Sanders' um, big policies are around um, sort of ma making ha having free two-year uh, co colleges for people. They're around an expansion of the healthcare system that people who are old already get. Is there? And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that people under a certain age are attracted to those kinds of policies but has there been a, a a paradigm shift even in welfare as well so on the first question i think whether it's the legacy of the term welfare queen or the concept of the welfare cheat i think the legacy was to render a whole class of people as being under suspicion and just the idea that you would beyond public assistance um, made you um, be someone who wasn't, wasn't to be trusted, basically. And just the, the idea that um, people that um, were receiving, whether it was food stamps or, or AFDC, were lazy and didn't want to work, although that's not really uh, borne out by, by research, um, I think it was very powerful and connected with a lot of people and welfare just became um, so kind of poisonous as a concept that um, I think it did lead to the welfare reforms of, of the 90s that essentially killed um, the concept of, uh, of public benefits in a, in a bunch of, of different ways. And so I, I think you can draw a line from that uh, uh, from Taylor to that outcome. And as far as, um, you know, that welfare being an issue in this campaign, I think, broadly speaking, inequality is, you know, if not the big issue, one of the big issues mm -hmm. of this campaign. And, um, you know, in some ways, the, the 94 reform so thoroughly eviscerated the welfare system that there's not even that much left to, to argue about. Um, <laughs> but there is, you know, there, there continues to be movements and pushes from the administration to, for instance, add work requirements to the food stamp program, to add work requirements to, to Medicaid. And the, just the idea um, persists that, um, you know, in, in a country where wealth inequality is so massive that the gains are to be made from clawing back more from the poor um, and that um, poor people are, are not to be trusted, that is, um, you know, still 
hugely persistent, even as it might, you know, manifest in a different way than it did in the nineties or the seventies or the thirties. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's probably our time right, right there. Um, Josh, thank you so much for joining us today and answering so many questions. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys. Um, it was a good conversation. I appreciate it. Um, so, uh, yeah, thank you, Josh, uh, for joining us. Uh, thank you, Vaughn, for appearing on your first show. First of many, I hope. Um, and uh, Toby, thank you as always uh, from Toby, Vaughn, Josh and myself uh, thank you very much for listening and there'll be another episode uh, of Impressions of America in the near future goodbye